course, as always, you can read along on the screen, but if you have a, a Bible you'd like to open, you can open it to Psalm 137 or an app on your phone. Uh, I would encourage you uh, to, to always keep God's Word near to you one way or another, and although we put it up here on the screen, we in no way want to discourage anyone from just always having God's Word with them and getting into it for themselves, and so we realize, and one of the reasons I say that, not awkward transition stuff, is, is everything we do on a Sunday, we hope is a practice for the stuff of everyday life. So we hope that we're learning to live in light of the story of God, that really the, what we sometimes call the fancy word, our liturgy, our order of service, is not simply some way to pull off a Sunday gathering, but is even a way that you can take and commune with God personally in your everyday life through His Word and through prayer. And it's also one reason why we're doing this series on the emotions. And we're not doing this because we think the emotions reign or are king, but we know how easy it is for us to let them reign. To let them take us in a way that is, that is not the way of the Spirit, but the way of the flesh. And yet at the same time, we, we really don't need to be afraid of our emotions. We need to see that God has created us as people who feel. And if we try to deny that, distract from that, detach from it, or drug it away, it is not going to lead anywhere except into the vicious cycle of more denial, of more distraction, of more detachment, and even more drugging of it away. So this morning we're going to look at the feeling or the emotion of sadness. And we're going to look in Psalm 137. Now Psalm 137 we're going to see ends with a verse that's like, oh wow, I, didn't, I might not have been ready for that. And so some people, we have to, to, to be true to what all of God's Word has to say, but I just want to go ahead and prepare you for that. And uh, here we go, Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. We confess it is your presence and it is your word alone that we need today. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be present now. We pray, God, that you would help us to hear, to listen, to see. Father, you know all of our self-protective strategies, our self-redemptive programs, our defenses. We just pray now that you, by your word and spirit, would pierce our hearts. We pray for conviction where it's needed, for comfort where it's needed, for clarity where it's needed. 
But above all, we pray that you would exalt Jesus because we know it's in him that we find freedom and life. So lead us to him again today, Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Of all of these emotions, without exaggerating, I would say this one may be surprisingly one of the hardest ones for us to deal with. And the reason it's one of the hardest ones for us to deal with is because in one way it's most of us feel maybe most familiar. If somebody were to ask you to list a list of emotions, you hurt might not be the first one that comes to your mind, but a lot of times being sad would. And I remember uh, earlier, well it's probably been two or three years ago now, in a circle of men sharing, and I gotta honor a lot of confidentiality here, but I remember hearing this guy, he's a friend, sharing this story of this really, really difficult thing he had went through in his life that was continuing to affect his, his own sense of self, his ministry, his marriage, his family, his relationships with other ability, people, and his, his ability to be intimate. And we had our emotions list. I didn't get it on the slides this morning, but you know it's got all these eight kind of core key emotions. And, and, and you know as we did this and we share, we're kind of like in a circle. So just imagine this kind of group of men, all pastors, and, and we're being asked to share some significant losses in our life. And he begins to share, and then the kind of the next step is, well, what were you feeling when you went through that? And I, and I kid you not, this didn't just happen with him, but with several, is going down the list really quick. Well, I was angry. Well, I felt guilt. I felt lonely. Maybe named almost all of them, but there was just one glaring exemption from the list and the facilitator of the group had to say what about this one and it was sad why do you think it is so hard for us to say that we feel sad we talk out loud sometimes we haven't did that in a while what do you think? Why, why might it be, you might say, well, it's not for me, so why might it be hard, easier for someone to say I'm angry than to say I'm sad, or to say I feel guilty than to say I feel sad? What do you think? Jesus is supposed to bring us joy. Yeah, so maybe if I say I'm sad, maybe that's kind of like a confession of I'm out of touch with Jesus. What else? Why is it hard to say I'm sad? Well, go back here, who was? Oh, Brittany? It's vulnerable and weak, yes. Melanie? You have to accept disappointment. Great. So there was a third voice I think I heard. Yeah, so like, what, what is this going to lead? It feels so incomplete. And I think this is why, if we're honest, we can all be experts at refusing to feel sad. And we want to avoid this one like the plague. Why? Because this may be one, above all of them, that you can do nothing about. If you really accept it, I am sad. Just sad. When I'm sad... 
what do I do? Well, the way we're going to talk about sadness today, all I can do a lot of times is just accept that this stinks. That this is a loss. And we're going to see there's a next step, and I think this next step, the next place that it leads, is one of the reasons why the world, the flesh, and the devil fight so hard to get us to just accept that and be sad. It's because when we follow the trail of where the Spirit leads us in our sadness, it's not to this kind of just sort of resigned acceptance that life stinks, is it leads us to the comfort of God. This is an issue that is not just about us in terms of our maintenance as followers of Jesus, but I would, I would argue that this issue, like all these in, in many ways, is very missional. The other night, Cassie and I went for a walk in the neighborhood like we, we do a whole lot, and we got over here to Wilson Street, and we heard this just loudest sort of screaming is, is partially maybe the word, but real groaning. We walked around the corner and over by Big Springs United Methodist Church, there's just this man standing in the corner of the doorway who is crying so loud you could hear him three streets over. Very awkward. People are nervous, confused, standing around. And I went up and tried to talk to him a little bit. And it just seemed he needed to cry. And a lot of stuff that evidently had been building up was coming out. Talked to a police officer and it was someone that knew him. And you know, you always assume that this might be drug induced or there's other type of things going on. But it seemed like this was just a person who was sad. And didn't know what else to do other than go stand out in the middle of the neighborhood and scream. If we as God's people do not have a category for dealing with sadness and honesty, then we're not going to have a lot to say to a lot of people in the world. Because the gospel is a gospel that has good news to sad people. It's good news that leads us not just to have the ability to accept what we cannot change, but to the comfort of one who is a redeemer, who can redeem all that we cannot redeem. And without receiving sadness, we ultimately will reject the comfort that God wants to give us. Without receiving sadness, what we're going to see here is we may really can never sing with any authenticity again. Sure, words can come out. Sure, smiles can be plastered on faces. But until we can really learn to receive the reality that there is loss in this world... Loss that in many ways will not be regained. Dreams that die. Hopes that don't happen. And yet a God who raises the dead. What we're called to do is to learn to sit with Jesus in our sadness so then we can learn to really sing with Jesus in His comfort. So how do we do that? The first thing we have to do is we have to reject the alternatives to sadness. There's a lot of them. The world does not want us to be sad unless it can manipulate that sadness to get us to buy stuff or to be who they want us to be. So in these first three verses, we see 
how God's enemies want His people to deal with their sadness. Now, first off, we see here, there's a lot to be sad about. Notice verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, and we, when we remembered Zion. So just to catch you up, this is a psalm of captivity. So God's people have been attacked in God's place, Jerusalem, or Zion, another name for the city of David, the city of God. And not only have they been attacked, not only have they been defeated, not only have they been humiliated, but they have been enslaved and taken as captives to the homeland of their captors. They are exiles. They've been brutally defeated. And it's important for me to speak here in some more clear terms because it's going to help make this whole psalm make sense. If you read about what took place around all of the exile, around all of the capture in the seas of Jerusalem, it was brutal. You can read about this in books of the Bible like 2 Kings. You can read about this in extra-biblical literature that speaks of these times. The temple of God was burnt. The temple of God was desolated. People were raped. Children were killed. And not only did this happen, but then they were led away as slaves to work for these very people who did those very things to them. This is not some sort of sentimental story. This is God's people looking at the people who very likely could have killed their family and are asking them to just shove it in and deny it. Some of this was due, we know, to the story of Israel due to God, the rebellion of God's people. It's consequences of sin, and yet it's also just downright suffering. So they weep. They weep. Verse 2 says, the, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. So this musical instrument is put up because this is not a season to sing. So they're being told, sing, sing your songs. And they're like, no, now's the time to, to put the instrument up. Verse 3, they're being told to be happy. Our captors required us of our songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Mirth, a, a joyful disposition. Come on, guys, I know you've been through a lot, but, you know, put on a happy face. You're kind of being a bummer. You're kind of a Debbie Downer here. Perform. And in a lot of ways, this would be a mocking of God. Sing us ones of the songs of Zion. What are the songs of Zion? That God is supreme, that God is sovereign. But look around. Where's your sovereign God now? What about those promises that there would always be a place for God's people? And we see here that the psalmists, those in this situation, are refusing to refuse sadness. But we're masters of it. We're masters of it. It makes us uncomfortable. Back to the group that I was in, I remember one person sharing this, this epic sad story begins to cry deep tears. And the initial reaction, which would likely be the reaction of many of us, was to get Kleenexes and hand it to him. To put a hand on a back, to pat his back. 
to, to encourage. And I remember the facilitator all of a sudden saying, what are you doing? Stop that. This is really sad. This, you need to cry. This is what we do. We're so uncomfortable with people being sad. We just want to shut it down. We don't want to deal with it. And it looks like we're doing it for other people. And sometimes it feels like we're doing it for other people. But if we're honest, we're really not just trying to caretake them. But we're trying to take care of ourselves. Because if we allow that type of thing to happen, then what could happen to us? This, this mentioned earlier, vulnerability. Again, remember, vulnerability is different than transparency. Transparency, I'll talk about what happened. Vulnerability is I'm going to feel about what happened. And I'm going to share about that. It's scary. I remember at one point even in this experience, another person, this just was keep happening over and over again. I don't know if it's just because we're pastors are extremely messed up more than other people. That's very possible. But... Another guy's sharing this story. It's just heartbreaking. And he's kind of smiling during it. Because you know that's kind of, for some of us, that's an anxiety kind of thing that we have, right? Okay, I'm starting to feel real anxious because I'm talking about something really deep. So I, so I start to smile or start to laugh. I'm trying to minimize it. Not because I'm strong, but because I'm scared. So how has the world, or the church actually, taught you what it means to be sad? Think about your family growing up. Some of you grew up in families and it was very evident really on what the boundaries were on what type of sadness was allowed. So what were yours? When was it okay to be sad? When was it not okay to be sad? Who could be sad? In your families, very likely, there may be some people that were allowed to be sad and other people who weren't allowed to be sad. Some of you, maybe that wasn't even enforced or impressed on you. You just knew, you just knew like, well, these people are sad and I don't want to compound that, so I'm not, I'll just be the happy person in the family. I'll be the peacemaker. I'll be the one that comes in as always feeling good. And you've spent so much of your life just shoving it down in there. But guess what? It's still there. You think about the church world. And obviously we love the church and love the local church. And we do not think that we have it figured out or we're better than any other church. We've said that from the start. We're not like, oh, church plant. We're here to show people how it's done. No, we don't know how it's done. We're just trying to follow Jesus. But one thing to talk larger about the church is, a lot of church talk is like you can't even call things death. Have you ever noticed how weird it is? Like in some conversations, don't say the word death. Well, they passed. Or, you know, we're going to have a celebration of life. Don't bring any of that negativity in here. I've, I've did way more funerals than I've did weddings due to churches I've pastored in the past. And the most recurring thing that I heard, no exaggeration, is, and, I, and I'm not saying this being negative, I, I understand it, I resonated with it, and trust me, this topic's the, hard for me. This is what I most often heard. Whatever you do, please don't let us have one of those sad funerals. Verbatim, I'm not making that up. Whatever you do, don't, don't, we don't want one of those sad funerals. 
Don't sing Mama, When Mama Prayed, Heaven Paid Attention or whatever. Some of you know that song. But anyway, see, look at me. I can't even handle it. I had to make some kind of dumb little joke in the middle of it that none of y'all even get. But anyway, uh, right? we don't want to be sad. Why? What do they teach us, or what did we learn to adapt to survive ourselves? Some of us just stuff it, right? Just ignore it. You know, just look on the bright side. We can get another dog. Don't cry, we can get another dog. Be strong. Some people learn, some of you have learned, that I can get approval and welcome and be accepted if I don't feel sad. Sing it away, text. I'm going to drown it out with music. You know, I'm feeling bad, so I'm just going to turn on the 12 hours of the most positive Christian music I can find. And at the end of it, you know, I'll have this kind of cathartic, emotionally manipulative experience. And I, and I kind of feel better. That's just a drug by another name. Storm it could be another way. So rage, right? So I don't know how to be sad. So I'm just going to get really ticked off. Let's go break something. I might go do it myself. I might have a friend who like we're all kind of agreed that because we're tough guys, we're not allowed to be sad, but we can be mad. So we'll go be mad. Then we substance it away. There's many people. They're all around us. You know, what's, what's behind drug addiction and abuse is, is not primarily uh, willpower or even uh, physical issues. It's, there's usually deep trauma and deep sadness in people's lives. They don't want to feel it anymore. And they found something that can help them not have to feel. And then we're very great at spiritualizing it away. Well, if I'm sad, then that must mean I'm not trusting God. Don't be sad. God works all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Don't be sad. People have it worse than you in Africa. Everything happens for a reason. Don't cry. Grandma's in heaven. And then one other way that we do it is we swear it away. That is, we make vows. So instead of being sad, we say... I will never get close to anybody else again. Some of you in here have made vows to deal with your sadness. Vows that are contrary to the kingdom of Christ. But you've not paid attention to that. Vows that are contrary to the way of Jesus. Vows that are contrary to the fruits of the Spirit. To the, to the, the picture of love we see in 1 Corinthians 13. You've made vows... To deal with your sadness. And where all of this rejected sadness leads is then to a place that is very hard also for us to admit, but it's to the land of self-pity. Poor, pitiful, powerless me. Nobody cares. I can't change anything. What's the point? And we practice our self-pity to avoid feeling sad, to avoid weeping, to avoid being real, being vulnerable. 
Again, this Voice of the Heart book that, we, that we're getting some of this material from in terms of the application, not the Psalms, says self-pity is a, an attempt to make others feel sadness for us. Say that again. Self-pity is an attempt to get others to feel sadness for us. We want to project that sadness on other people. We don't want to carry it. We've we got to get somebody else to carry it. Self-pity is a demand that someone pay for my grief. The voice of the heart says, rather than admitting sadness and exposing my vulnerable heart to you, self-pity says, I'm being pitiful so you will pity me. And if we continue to live in the land of self-pity, then we end up at the journey's destination of demand. So if you see somebody that's really demanding, this is it, this is my way. We want to go a lot of other places, but it may be there's some sadness that needs to be attended to. There's some real losses that have taken place in this person's life that they're not being honest about. It's easy to get frustrated at people who are full of self-pity and people who become demanding out of that self-pity. I just want to encourage, if that's you, to step into grace. And if you live with people like that, and we all do, and we are people like that, don't write them off. Don't run from them because that just confirms to them what they're telling themselves is, I knew I couldn't be sad. I knew people couldn't handle me. I knew that when I was like that, people leave. We must not refuse our sadness and we must be aware of the alternatives because they are many. But not only must we refuse sadness, like they, they refuse to refuse it, right? We're not going to sing. We're not going to play the game. Verses 4 through 6 tell us and point us to the direction that we receive the feeling of sadness. So how does the psalmist deal with this? Well, again, first of all, again, there's just this rejection of the substitutes. Notice, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This would not be appropriate. We've got to have a category for there are certain times. We're going to get to all those verses you're thinking about where it says rejoice always. We're going to get there. I just got to say it. There are certain times when it's not appropriate to be anything but sad. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We're just going to deny this? We're just going to act like everything is okay? That's performance. That's not praise. That's a dead work. When you praise God from a place of inauthentic really just deceitful, not telling the truth about reality. And we tell ourselves that's faith and that's praise when it's really just falsehood, it's lies, and your father is sitting up there saying, I, I don't need you to sing right now. I want you to be real with me. I love you. I want your heart. Verse 5, not only is this rejection when it's inappropriate, but there's a remembering what was lost. It's, no, he says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. What's happening with the right hand? Well, in this context, right, it's playing this lyre. He's saying, if I decide that I'm going to live a life of denial, then let me forget how to play the music. 
I don't, I don't want to play like that. I don't want to live like that. I want to remember what was lost. I don't want to live a life of dismissal. I don't want to live a life of disassociation. I don't want to live a life of distracting or detaching or drugging away reality. And what was lost here is huge. This may not resonate with us as much, but Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the epitome of the fulfillment of the promises of God for the people of God. Jerusalem was to be the center of the new Eden where God's people would be fruitful and multiply and enjoy God and all the nations would be blessed. At the end of the book of Joshua, as the people received this great inheritance, it says, and all the promises of God were fulfilled. And now it's all been stripped away. It's a place of worship. It was a place of security. It was a place of hope, of confidence. It was a place where there was a future. But now it was a place that had been torn to the ground. So verse 6, Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. There's not this just rejection of the substitutes for sadness and a remembering of what was lost. There really is this reverence or honor for what was precious that was behind the pain. When we allow ourselves to be sad, we are honoring, valuing what was lost. We're valuing the goodness of God. We're valuing the glory of God. We're valuing the gifts of God. If you give your child a gift and a neighbor steals it and they don't care, how does that make you feel? Well, I'm just glad my child has no feelings. No. The voice of the heart said, Sadness is the feeling that speaks to how much you value what is missed, what is gone, what is lost. It also speaks of how deeply you value what you love, what you have, and what you live. Most all of us in here have had some kind of dream that has died. If you hadn't, you will. There's your encouraging word for the day. But you will. And it's one thing that I love to do about ministry is to remind people that their identity is not bound up in what they've done, what they do, or what's been done to them. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, right? Is that no matter how bad what you've done is or what's been done to you is, who you are in Christ is where you find your identity. When we talk about being gospel-centered or gospel-motivated or gospel-driven as a church, we're not talking about, you know, you throw the cross onto the end of the sermon or whatever. We're talking about the logic of the gospel that says, I am, always supersedes and precedes, I do. But this can get distorted in a way that I noticed in my life in this situation where my, my friend was sharing about this, fail, this failed dream and, and again, you were, everybody rushes so fast to say, oh, I just want to remind you, brother, you're not a failure. But if we're not careful what happened, and it did happen in this situation, is we start to say, you didn't, you didn't fail. 
So because we can't deal with that reality, right? And so we start to say, well, I bet God did this, God did this, and that's all true. But what is it called if you have a goal that you set and you don't reach it? I don't know. It sounds like you failed. <laughs> this, is, this is what I want to do when I say that. I was about to do it. I'm not going to. I want to just even saying that out loud, go crawl behind this monitor. We do fail, don't we? We're not failures, but we fail. And that hurts. And it makes us sad. But we don't know what to do with it because of all those other things I've already said. And so we stuff it down somewhere and we live with it and it comes out in all our relationships. It comes out in all our future hopes and dreams. Because we just weren't able to be sad and say, what a loss. What a loss. I did fail, but I'm not a failure. I'm not dead, but that dream did die. If you live long enough, there's going to be things you hope that would happen that won't happen. You may end up in Babylon when you had just planted a garden in Zion. But dismissal is dishonor. Dismissal is dishonor. I would say maybe if we, if sadness isn't a great enough subject for us to talk about in here and make everybody feel uncomfortable, let's talk about racial injustice. So, one reason I think that that issue can be so hard for so many people, particularly for my friends that I know who are minorities, is not that they're looking for anybody to like do anything. It's just they just don't want you to dismiss that it's a reality. Because dismissal is dishonor. But with that issue makes us feel bad because we don't know how to be sad. We don't know how to lament. And so we're like, well, what do you want me to do? Just tell me what to do so I can get it over with. Just tell me what to do so you'll shut up. That's what it feels like. Why don't you not do anything much yet and just be sad? And it's like that in your homes. I know it. In your marriages. Just tell me what to do. Oh, maybe we just need to be sad because this is sad. Well, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I feel like I'm being manipulated right now. No, you're not. This is loss. It happens in college. It happens in all relationships. It happens in parenting. It happens to kids. But we're afraid to be sad. We get defensive. We get defiant. We've got to learn to be sad. We say this with each of these. And so this is a similar pattern. It's the first thing we, we do is we've got to learn to feel the feelings. It's going to take some courage for a lot of us. We need to grieve deeply. When dreams die, when people die, when the job doesn't work out, maybe there's a divorce, 
Maybe your health, maybe a sin you've committed and there's consequences from it that are just, it is what it is. You need to feel sad. No caretaking. You just need to accept this stinks. And in many cases, it ain't changing. Somebody dies. We're going to get to this in a minute, how Jesus handled this. They're dead. And God gives us sadness or grief to help us tell the truth. This is the next thing. We feel the feeling we tell the truth. So you need to ask yourself, do you want some homework? What are the significant losses in your life? Some of these may be big, sort of like historical losses. And some of them may be kind of present things. But you probably need to set aside some time, get a journal, get a piece of paper, get by yourself, or get with somebody, because some of us have disassociated so much we don't even know. You might need to get with a family member, because you may have blocked out everything that happened until you moved out of the house. Say, what, what's happened that's sad? Can I name that? Can I honor it by naming it? Can I honor God by naming this? It may be your sin, significant sins in your life, self-inflicted suffering. It could be wounds, suffering that have just come upon you by nature of living in a fallen world with fallen people. It could be attacks from the enemy, lies that you've lived with, particular besetting sins that just, just won't let you go. And you just need to grieve the fact that, man, this, this, like, this plagues me. You need to remember before God and you need to find somebody else to help you remember or just share this with. And this is hard. Sadness can be a very lonely place. And we're so afraid nobody can handle it. And maybe first off that God can't handle it. So you just keep it to yourself. You're so afraid how you're going to be judged by other people. Sadly, many times Christians, right? So you'll go find some people who aren't Christians certain times and you'll be like, hey, I, I can open up with these folks. Sadness can be a very lonely place, and this is one reason, and we'll get to this more when we get to the feeling of loneliness, is that there can be a lot of intensity in the church world, but not a lot of intimacy, because we can be very good at doing things together, but very, very weak at actually being together. Which the heart says, honoring loss is honoring God. Say it again, honoring loss is honoring God, others, and self, and opens the door to being known and comforted by God, others, and self. So you've got to remember these things, and then you've got to ask yourself the questions, how have I dealt with this in my life? How do I do sadness? And some of you are going to say, I don't do it. Well, that's, that's a win that you get in there. And that's how you do it, right? You just stuff it, you just ignore it, you just power through is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way we see in God's Word. So we feel the feeling, we tell the truth, but then ultimately we have to give it to God. Now this is not some sort of just mere transaction, a one-time prayer, but it is learning to be real with who we are before the Father so that He, by His Spirit, can work within us to receive this gift of acceptance. Some of you in here are so angry. You're so angry deep down. 
And one of the reasons you're so angry is because you just refuse to accept that in this life there are going to be things outside of your control that are going to hurt you, that are going to disappoint you, and there is nothing you can do to change it. Doing this study on the emotions, this is kind of how bad I think, if I really study this, then I won't have to deal with it so much because I'll become kind of good at it. Prepare for disappointment, right? Accepting in this life there are things that are going to happen that are going to hurt us. But this is not acceptance that says that's okay. It's just acceptance that says that's life in a fallen world. And when we begin to do that, although it's so scary, we begin to find ourselves opened up before God. We begin to find ourselves in a place where we quit playing God. It's really an act of repentance to accept this is a fallen world. Bad things happen that will have consequences that I cannot undo. But you are God. I'm going to have to give that to you. I'm going to have to relinquish that into your hands. It's not saying bad things are good. It's actually the opposite. Bad things are bad, but God, you are good. To quote again, it says, To avoid facing life on life's terms and to stay away from sadness, we've been, get, we've been able to cre create the illusion that aging and eventually death can be staved off or that losses do not matter. And this next statement might be overstated, but here it is. I didn't write it, so don't email me. The truth is, they do matter. And if we live long enough in this life, we will eventually lose everyone and everything that matters to us. That's heavy. So if you're like me, well, how in the, pardon me, heck, do I go out of here and have the power to do, deal with that? Well, the good news is we, we have a God who we can run to. In verses 7 through 9, as scary as they make all of us maybe pro-life people feel, right? We have a picture here of a psalmist who is crying out to a God of justice. A God who is in the business of setting all things to right. A God who is sovereign over all the sadness. A God who is supreme. This is what's being said in verses 7 through 9. We see here the psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Now, there's a little book in the Old Testament called the book of Obadiah. If you want to go read it, it gives some more background to this judgment being pronounced on the Edomites. But this is kind of what went on. The Babylonians came in. The Edomites were kind of like Israel's sister people, like they're supposed to be kind of like friends. And the Edomites sat back, watched the Babylons destroy, raid, raise God's people, and they kind of were like their cheerleaders. And then after Babylon got finished doing all the horrible stuff that they did, the Edomites came in behind them and had their way with the people of God in the place of God. So there's this prayer, bring justice to the Edomites. Verse 8, bring justice to Babylon. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. The Babylonians again had taken everything. They had mocked God. They had destroyed the temple. 
They had enslaved God's people. And then verse 9. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Well, man, wow, is that in the Bible? What's going on here? This is a prayer that God would bring justice to equal proportions. This is an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type statement. These people had raped, murdered, burned, and destroyed. And if you read the background behind all this, the kids were no exception. Maybe we know from 2 Kings 12, Hosea 10, 14, that Babylon, one of the things that they did was sacrifice children in worship. Child sacrifice. So many think, and I don't think it's within the realm of reason, is that these Babylonians came in and took the children of God's people and offered them as sacrifices to their gods. That's the raw place this psalm's coming from. We're right to squirm, and we're going to speak to that next, but here, this is what Charles Spurgeon has to say. Let those who find fault, who have never seen their temple burned, their cities ruined, their wives ravished, and their children slain, Perhaps they might be not so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered in this fashion themselves. This is a cry of the heart. This is what the psalmists are. The psalms are. So how does God answer their prayers for us who are overwhelmed in our sadness? Well, the ultimate answer is not simply in an act, but it's in a name. The name is Jesus. God's response to Psalm 137.9 is not, let's lower the reality here, guys. You've gotten carried away. God actually says, no, it's, it's actually worse than that. There's actually more that's got to be done than that. God hates sin and suffering more than we do. Our triune God does more than come to dash the children of his enemies. But ultimately what our God does is sends his own son to be dashed for us. You know, we're more like the Babylonians in this story than we are the Israelites. But in union together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, hey, instead of giving everybody what they deserve, let's go take that justice for them. This is the gospel. This is why we do have to hang up our lyres or leers for a season, but we don't have to break them. This is why we can be with the Apostle Paul who says, I'm always sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Both. 
This is why we read in John 11, and we don't have the time to do it like we should, but I'd encourage you to. We see Jesus just living this out. This is not me making some sort of obscure gospel connection. You know that Jesus had friends. In John 11, in the book of John, we see he had these friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were close friends. Lazarus gets really sick and word is sent to him. And you know the way it's stated, it says, the one whom you love. It's risky to love people, isn't it? There's a lot of loss that happens when you love. Jesus loved people. He loves you. And Jesus' close friend dies. And Jesus was very sad. In John eleven thirty three, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit. You know, we know very clearly the Bible teaches Jesus was fully God, but it also teaches he was fully man. Because he was deeply moved in his spirit. He didn't stuff it. He didn't sing it away. He didn't substance it away. He didn't rage it away. He didn't spiritualize it away. And as it says that he was deeply troubled in his spirit, and the, the language behind that is like to even to like snort like a horse. So he's like just physically overwhelmed with this sadness. I want you just to imagine, what, is it, what would that look like to you? Can you imagine right now Jesus, his friend whom he loved, is dead? Imagine how it looked for him to be tore up like that. And now I want you to ask yourself this question. Is that how you've taught it's been appropriate to be sad? Are you embarrassed by Jesus? On his face, broken because his friend is dead? But what does he do? He does the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. Real tears, real loss, a real lack of words. What did he not do? Well, he didn't show up earlier and heal him like he could have. Why? Because he wants to show us the power of the resurrection. But it's also because he wants to show us something else. That it's okay to be sad. It's not just okay to be sad. If you're not sad when bad things happen, you are not Christ-like. If you are not sad when bad things happen, you're not being a human in a fallen world. You are not being strong if you're not sad. doesn't have to look the same as everybody else's sadness looks, but to stuff it, to move on, to sing it away, is to not follow in the way of Jesus. What does Jesus do next? Out of his acceptance of sadness, he moves forward and he raises Lazarus from the dead. He gives us the reason that we can sing. But notice, this is even more amazing. Why did Jesus cry if he knew in a few minutes he was going to raise his buddy from the dead? That's what a lot of you've been taught. Don't be sad. Jesus is coming back. 
Don't be sad. There's a resurrection. Don't say death. Don't say funeral. We're Christians. It's a bad witness for us to be sad. No, it's the opposite. Jesus knows he's about to raise him from the dead and he still cries because it's still a real loss. It's still a real evil. It's still a real enemy. And it's only when we accept that that then we can accept the beauty and the glory of the resurrection. So the question that many of you have to ask, and you are asking it, is can I be sad and still be sane? That's the question I've asked myself as I prepared this. It's like, where does this stop? I mean, Jesus didn't have the news, or maybe he would, you know, wouldn't have led us in this way. The only way we can be sad and be sane is the answer to the question, can we be sad and ever sing again? And yes, the answer is we can. It's because we do know that Jesus is risen. And not only is He risen, that He reigns. He gives us His Holy Spirit so that now we don't have to go through the sadness alone. We have the Advocate, the Comforter, the Helper, the same Spirit that indwelt Jesus as He wept at Lazarus' tomb, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Holy Spirit that is in us, but we're going to have to learn to trust the Spirit and not the flesh when we're sad. We're experts at trusting the flesh, but what is it going to look like when you're sad instead of just saying, well, there it goes me, I'm going off the roller coaster, the deep end, everything's going to go wild. What is it going to look like for us to say, no, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So what is it going to look like for me to be honest about this and yet to learn to walk in step with the Spirit of God in the way of Christ? It's, you're going to fail. You're going to fall off the bike because this is a weak muscle, but God is with you. And as we follow the Spirit, we will find ourselves like we find Paul and Silas imprisoned. But what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing. They're not singing because life is good. They're singing because Jesus is alive. And when we learn to sit with Jesus in our sadness, that he will teach us how to sing with him through his comfort. Father, we thank you that you are with us today. And we pray that as we come to your table, that you would remind us that it is finished. That you would give us the confidence to be honest, to be patient, to accept both the reality of this world, but the greater reality of your redemption. And we thank you, Jesus, as you told us to partake of this supper until you return, that one day you will return and every sad thing will be done away with. We thank you there will be no more tears, no more crying. And we pray now, God, for the hope of the kingdom to invade our hearts in light of that truth. In Jesus' name we pray.